Great to gather back with you all this morning. Um, We will this morning be finishing up um, our third and final lesson on this on this topic we we began entitled it uh, redemption accomplished and applied uh, we're discussing the doctrine of definite atonement it's a theological examination of the extent and efficacy of the of the atonement and uh, so if you've not been with us um, we've taken a break from the gospel of John to take a step back and to examine some of these things that John has been teaching us throughout his gospel and try to piece them together theologically, try to answer some of these questions. What did Christ accomplish in his atonement? Who was his atonement aimed at? The reason we've done that is because this is actually a very significant doctrine. Um, there's numerous implications for the, for the Christian life. And I know it's controversial, um, but uh, contrary to common belief, it's actually good for more than just stirring up controversy and, and debate. It's a, it's a precious doctrine, um, one that should have a profound impact on our lives. So we've defined this doctrine, the doctrine of definite atonement, simply as the teaching that Christ is a redeemer who really does redeem. His work on the cross did more than simply make redemption possible for every single person. It actually secured the salvation from beginning to end of all those the Father gave to the Son, such that none would be lost. And last week, we gave some final biblical arguments for the truth of this doctrine, and then we gave two points of application to explain why this doctrine is so significant and how it should impact our lives. And the two points were that, number one, the doctrine exists for the glory of God in Christ and should produce lasting worship of God in Christ. And number two, the doctrine exists for the assurance of God's people. So those are the two points of application last week, and this week we will give two more points of application in closing. But before I do that, I just want to make one point of clarification by way of a pastoral concern. While I've been highlighting the the truth and significance of this doctrine, I'm also aware that it can be new territory for some of you, maybe many of you in this room. You hear some of these things and think to yourself, man, I've never thought of the cross in that way before. I've never even considered that what Christ accomplished on the cross for me went to that extent. Did I even understand anything of the gospel? And I understand how unsettling that can be sometimes when when, when paradigms begin to, to shift, ways of thinking and speaking about things like the gospel and of salvation, things of utmost significance in my life. When they begin to be corrected and and realigned, it can be very unsettling. And so I just want to say here from the outset two things. Number one, part of what it means to be a Christian is growth in the discovery of what Christ has done for you and how you became a Christian. Nobody, when they're first saved, 
comes to faith and understands all that went into that. You don't. All you knew was you were a sinner and you needed a savior and Christ was that savior and you laid on hold unto him by faith. That's all you knew. But as we grow as a Christian, we're to grow more and more in understanding of what he did for us, the depths of grace, the magnificence of this salvation and all that went into it. So don't let it rattle you too badly if these are new thoughts. But at the same time, don't be content with elementary understandings of the gospel. Press on. Think more deeply. Number two, perhaps you have remained unconvinced as we have gone through some of these arguments in support of this doctrine. That's okay. Keep thinking. Keep striving. Keep studying the Bible. While I am in these lessons making a case for the significance of this doctrine, I do not want to be heard to be saying that getting this doctrine wrong or disagreeing with it means that you are not saved or that you do not understand the gospel at all. I think you can disagree with this doctrine and still be saved. But I think you'll have a lot of inconsistencies in your theology I think you will be missing out on some sweet and precious truths that have been meant by God for you. This doctrine is at the heart of the cross and the gospel message we proclaim, which is what we're going to look at this morning. I believe it's essential for a thoroughly biblical understanding of the cross. And yet I want to affirm here that it is not essential for salvation so long as you have a true hold on Christ and rely on his cross for you as we will again explain this morning. So with that said, let's look now at these final two points of application and answer to our our question, why is this doctrine important and how should it affect our lives? Well, this doctrine is important because this doctrine helps us to rightly understand the depths of God's particular love for us. Now, there is certainly a sense in which God loves every single person. God has a general love for the world. This is clearly seen in a couple of places. It is clearly seen, first, in his works of providence over all creation. Not only has he made a good world, he continues to shower this world that's now in rebellion to him with unspeakable love and acts of benevolence. So we read in Matthew 5, 45, that he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is in the context of loving your enemies. God loves his enemies. He fills the lives of people with good things and does not give immediate judgment. That's how God loves the world. But that's not the only way God expresses his general love to every person. The greatest way he has done that is by sending his son into the world. It is in his salvific stance toward humanity. You know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
It's because of a failure to let this text stand on its own terms that people have concluded that this verse is speaking only about God's love for the elect. It is not. That's not what world means. Rather, God loves the world, this rebellious system of humanity, to such an extent that he sent his son, his precious son, whom he loves, to accomplish all that was necessary for the salvation of this wicked world should they believe in him. And what's so amazing in the Gospel of John is that God is simultaneously standing over the world in wrath and judgment, right? John 3.36, the wrath of God remains on him, while at the same time loves the world so much that he offers the gift of escaping his wrath and judgment. In other words, this is the picture of God's salvific stance toward the world. He invites, calls, commands, promises. And John says it's an expression of God's extraordinary love to the world, to non-believers. So that by believing, they might be brought out of the world, made a part of his people and receive eternal life. So it's absolutely true to tell an unbeliever that God loves them. Of course he does. you kidding? Nevertheless, Just as it is wrong to flatten this text out to apply only to the elect, it's equally wrong to flatten out other texts which highlight the particular love of God for his own. In other words, you can get away from the biblical balance here about God's love by one of two extremes. Either God does not actually love the world at all. He only loves the elect. That's wrong. Or... God's love is exactly the same for every single person, elect and non-elect. And that's wrong as well. When the Bible speaks of God's love, it speaks about it in a variety of ways. There's texture to it. It's not simple or flattened out. God loves the world, including unbelievers, in one sense. And he loves his own, his elect, his sheep, in another, deeper, greater sense. It's a book here by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Very short, about four chapters, excellent book where he deals with this. Understanding the love of God as it is presented in the the New Testament. Sort of this texture to it. It's not simple. There's different ways in which God's love is described. Very helpful little book here. And this shouldn't be too hard for us to understand, should it? As a believer... I am to have a general love toward humanity, right? All people I am to love. Benevolence toward mankind. And yet there's no question that I love my wife in a way very different than how I love anybody else. It's a covenant love. And that's the way God loves his people, his covenant people, whom he has chosen God loves these, you and I, in a way distinct from how he loves the world. His love for us is the ultimate reason why we've been brought out from the world. It was what led Christ to lay down his life for us. So, so look at what, how John puts it. John 13, verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour to come. Having loved 
his own who were in the world. Particular. He loved them to the utmost, to the end. It was love that was not constrained or in response to something we did or chose, but was completely free, initiating the very reason for any of our love for him. 1 John 4. And this, the love of God is made manifest. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live. And this is love, not that we have loved God. We haven't, first and foremost. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us in that way. So my point here is to call us to behold the magnificence of God's love for you, believer. So many believers do not know how much they have been loved. As far as they're concerned, God loves them just as much as he loves anybody else. And anything more they have in terms of salvation than the world is ultimately owing to their own ability and their decision and their choice, not God's free, amazing grace and love. They don't know how they've been loved. But the Bible would tell us just the opposite. God wants you to know that you have been loved with a covenant love. A free love that has gone beyond a salvific stance to actually accomplishing your salvation. Christ has loved you not only by making a sufficient atonement, but he's loved you by making an effectual atonement on your behalf from which has come everything else in your life, even your faith. So look with me at how Paul talks about this. Go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. I just realized I did not pass out the outline to you. Let me, y'all are probably wondering. Is he going to pass it out? Second Corinthians chapter five, verses fourteen through through fifteen. This is another one of those problem texts um, that we, we encounter. I told you last week we're going to be weaving in some of these problem texts into this part of the lesson. And I want to demonstrate that these texts not only do not contradict the doctrine of definite atonement, but they actually support it. And not only that, but they are also texts which, when understood, bring an enormous amount of encouragement to our lives as believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, is one such passage. Paul has just ex- finished explaining that his entire life and ministry aimed at one thing. Pleasing God, serving the church, and seeking to persuade others with the gospel even if it looks like being out of his mind to worldly standards. That's what he told them in verses 11 to 13. And in verse 11, he gives the first reason behind this kind of a life. It's the fear of the Lord. That's why he acts the way he does. But now in verses 14 to 15, he gives a second reason why everything about his life was directed away from pleasing himself to being totally devoted to God and the spiritual well-being of the Corinthians. What is it? What is the love of Christ? Look at verse 14. 
Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the love of Christ. So let's look at this closely. Paul says the love of Christ. The love of Christ here most likely means the love that Christ has shown for us, not the love we have for Christ. It could go either way. I think Paul's main meaning here is the love that Christ has shown us. And really, these two are inseparable, as we'll see in this this passage. Paul says that Christ's love for him is what controls him. The word has the idea of restraining and compelling. It keeps Paul back from living for himself, and it drives him to live for Christ. But where did this controlling knowledge of the love of Christ come from? Where did it come from? Paul tells us. He says, because we have concluded this, or considering this. It came from Paul's recognition of what Christ did for him. Okay? What's that? We'll look at the rest of the verse. What is that? What did Christ do? He said, that one has died for all. Now, you can see how on the surface this looks like it stands in complete contradiction with what we've been saying. I mean, it's right there, Michael. He died for all, right? So many have concluded from this that Christ died for all potentially. Since, obviously, not all are saved. He died for every single person so as to provide the potential for their salvation, which is theirs to secure on their own, through their own free choice. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. I don't think that's what he means because of what he says next. One has died for all, therefore all died. That all in the second half is the same group as the all in the first half. All those for whom Christ died. And that conjunction there, therefore, you see that? It's very strong and clear, indicating the result or the inference from Christ's death. The result of Christ's death for all is that all died. Dying here clearly refers to spiritual death. So what Pastor Farrell has been teaching us in Romans 6, our old self was crucified with him, no longer enslaved to to sin. And Paul says that that happened to all because Christ died for them. All right? So that must mean that all does not mean all without exception. Every person without exception. Christ died for all, that is to say, for all those in union with him. When Paul says, has this language, one died, right? One died for all. It connects us to other places where he speaks of one man. Think where Pastor Farrell was just at in Romans 5. Christ as another Adam. Just as through one man, transgression of one man, Adam, all those in Adam, represented by Adam, were plunged into sin and death, so also through the death of one man, here it is, all those in union with Christ die to sin and are given new life. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5.18. Look, look at how he says it there. Therefore, as trespass led to condemnation for all men in Adam, 
so also one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That clearly cannot mean every single person, but all men in Christ. So 2 Corinthians 5.14, Christ's death is clearly substitutionary, and it is effectual. It accomplishes something. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Look at what he says next. He died for all. He restates what he's just said in another way. And then look what he says. So that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Who are the those who live here? It's obvious that living here must refer to spiritual life. It doesn't refer to physical life because that would be completely superfluous for Paul to say. Everybody's living physically. That's not what he's saying. Those who live spiritually. This group of those who live must be the same as the all in the previous verse, who's the same as the all for whom Christ died. Because according to Paul, it's unthinkable that one should die with Christ and not be raised to life with Christ, right? But that's not where Paul leaves it. Look what he says. He actually says in this verse, he simply assumes their spiritual life. Christ died for them with a purpose beyond giving them a new spiritual capacity. And that purpose is actually what defines and characterizes just what it means to die with Christ. Look at the verse. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Those who died and lived as a result of Christ's death now live for him. The result of Christ's death is newness of life, which no longer lives for self, but for Christ. Listen to John Murray. He says, all for whom Christ died also died in Christ. All who died in Christ rose again with Christ. This rising again with Christ is a rising to newness of life after the likeness of Christ's resurrection. To die with Christ, therefore, is to die to sin and rise with him to the new to the life of new obedience. To live not to ourselves, but to him who died for us and rose again. The inference is inevitable that those for whom Christ died are those and only those who died to sin and live to righteousness. And the way Paul explains how that works out in our lives is this. And this is the key. The controlling knowledge of the love Christ has shown to me. Christ loved me so much that he died for me, which resulted in my death to sin and spiritual life to God. But that's not all. Christ not only demonstrated his love by how it affected me, but this love is the very thing that is to overpower my life and be the power behind everything that I do in my life. Christ loved me so that knowing his love, I would be set free from a life of self-serving to a life of loving, unrestrained service to him. And do you know where Paul goes to identify the greatness of Christ's love to him, which is the controlling power of his life? Where does Paul go? He goes to particular redemption, doesn't he? You see that? I wonder if that's the reason why this kind of a Selfless life of love is so rare. Why it's so weak in my own life often. 
is that we have such a watered-down version of the love of Christ. I think Paul is saying that when we truly grasp that in the cross Christ died for me, it was the primary cause of every other gift of redemption that I enjoy. It must lead to a life which cannot do anything other than living for him in return. So we can flip it around, can't we? The extent to which I am living for self. And that's what's at root of every sin, living for self. The extent that I'm living for self is the extent to which I have failed to grasp the love of Christ for me. That's what's at root. And a life completely under the dominion of sin is a life that has never come to experience the love of Christ at all. But that dominion's broken when after hearing the gospel, we receive the love of Christ and his death as our own. And when you do that, according to Paul, it's clear that Christ indeed died for you. So we can see here just how astonished Paul was by the truth of Christ's love. He never got over it. He never got over it. It always amazed him. It wasn't Christ's good feelings or good intentions for Paul. It's what Christ accomplished for Paul that astonished Paul. Even when Paul was still an enemy. Listen to 1 Timothy. The formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with what? Look at this. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. He never got over it. So my call to us is to know the love of God in Christ for you, a particular covenant, special, initiating, free, effectual love for you. Know that. Now the place to go is to Christ's definite work for you on the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, how do I live? I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? He loved me. And he gave himself up for me. That is what this doctrine is meant to do in our lives. So with that, we come now to our our fourth and final reason. Why is this doctrine important and and how should it affect our, our lives? This doctrine is important because it helps us to faithfully and confidently proclaim the gospel. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. How do I share the gospel if this is true? It's what most of us are probably asking. 
before I get there, I just want to emphasize that my, my point here is not simply to say that those who embrace this doctrine say like this, my point is to say that those who embrace this doctrine do not have a less free gospel than those who have a universal atonement. It's not that we have something less free. This doctrine does not destroy the basis for a universal proclamation of the gospel. It does not. It does not destroy the basis for a universal call to repentance and faith. In fact, my point here is to argue that it is actually the very basis for a full and free gospel message. That if you don't have this kind of atonement, you don't have as full and free a gospel message. So let's look at it. This doctrine enables us to preach the gospel with clarity and universality. The charge that's often pressed against those who believe in definite atonement is that if such a doctrine were true, if that's true, that it would make a genuine offer of the gospel to all people impossible. It would make the offer of the gospel invalid and non-sincere if indeed Christ didn't die for every person. That's what's normally said. But that simply is not true. It's not true. It's not true because the message of the gospel holds out real and true and valid conditions. The gospel holds out promises to be believed and commands to be obeyed. Repent and believe are commands issued by Christ to to the world. It holds out the promise that everyone who repents and believes will indeed be saved. Christ commands and promises, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those are absolutely true and valid conditions and promises. No one has ever responded to the gospel call with true faith and repentance who has been turned away, ever. We've also seen that the real love God has for the world expressed in his salvific stance toward the world, which he's calling, commanding faith and repentance, holding out the promise of life if they they do respond. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, however much God stands in judgment over the world, he presents himself as the God who invites, commands all human beings to repent. He orders his people to carry the gospel to the farthest corner of the world, proclaiming it to men and women everywhere. That's the kind of gospel we proclaim. And it's true and valid. That raises another question, doesn't it? When we share the gospel, what do we say? Should we tell people Jesus died for your sins? Should I say that? What should we direct them to place their faith in? So let me try to answer those questions for you. Should we tell unbelievers that Jesus died for your sins? Well, I think it depends on what you mean by that and what they understand you're communicating by that. If by that you're communicating to them that their sins have already been atoned for and therefore they will never encounter the wrath and judgment of God, then therefore that's obviously incorrect, right? 
But I don't think that that's what that statement automatically communicates, right? Rather, if by saying Jesus died for your sins, you simply mean that Christ so died and made complete atonement for the sin of all his people, satisfying the judgment of God, accomplishing everything necessary for their salvation, which benefits can belong to you if you repent and believe in him. If that's what you mean by it, then that's nothing less than the true offer of the gospel, biblically. In other words, these invitations of the gospel are universal. The question of the extent of the atonement does not come up in evangelistic preaching. We don't know who those people are, right? J.I. Packer put it this way. He says, the message to be delivered is simply this, that Christ Jesus, the sovereign Lord who died for sinners, now invites sinners freely to himself. God commands all to repent and believe. Christ promises life and peace for all who do so. And that leads to the next point. Why we have a valid and sincere gospel message? It's because the gospel is not a general atonement that didn't really accomplish anything. It's a complete certain atonement that satisfied the wrath of God for those for whom Christ died. And it's ironically only a definite atonement which can make such an offer. That by faith you're invited into Christ's special covenant people for whom he's already secured their complete redemption. You see? So what does a biblical gospel presentation sound like? What does it consist of? J.A. Packer again sums it up well. He says the basis on which the New Testament invites sinners to put their faith in Christ is simply that they need him. And that he offers himself to them. And that those who receive him are promised all the benefits that his death secured for his people. Notice that what Christ offers is not merely the forgiveness of sins. It's himself. Everything that he is. Everything that he's accomplished and promised is to receive Christ by faith as Lord and Savior. John Murray writes, What is offered in the gospel? It's Christ who is offered. More strictly, he offers himself. The whole gamut of redemptive grace is included. Salvation in all its aspects and in the furthest reaches of glory consummated is the overture. Christ is the embodiment of all. Those who are his are complete in him and he has made unto them wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When Christ invites us to himself, it is to the possession of himself. And therefore, of all that defines his identity as Lord and Savior. It's not an invitation merely to receive a blessing from Jesus that he provided by his death. You see? It's to receive him. John 1.12, what does it say? To as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. All that he is is Messiah, Lord, Master, God, Redeemer. And those that do can be assured that all that is his is now mine. The gospel calls us to know and cast ourselves fully on Christ and his redeeming work. The best picture of faith in the gospel of John, John 3.14, as Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross that whoever looks to him, depending, casting themselves fully on what he accomplished, will have eternal life. You can see in your outline, I don't have time to read it, a helpful quote again by Packer quoting John Owen, listing four basic points which are characterized our, our gospel message. Very, very helpful and clear. If you want an excellent example of how to preach this kind of a full gospel, free, abundant gospel of grace, I can think of no better little work than All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. Fantastic little book written for unbelievers. But man, it is so nourishing and rich for our souls. So good. Pick this up. And there wasn't a more universal, free proclaimer of the gospel than Spurgeon. And he affirmed everything we're saying this morning. Well, we have just a couple minutes left. With that, I want to conclude by noting a few ways that this doctrine protects our gospel message from distortions that come from a universal view of the atonement. So first, it enables us to preach the gospel with clarity and universality, and then it protects our gospel message. And I have three. Number one, it presents God as the patient sovereign rather than pathetically pleading. True preaching of the gospel doesn't treat God as pitiable, impotent, and frustrated. He's not standing back just hoping people will do their part so that what he intended to accomplish in Christ would really be able to happen. J.I. Packer said it this way, so far from magnifying the love of and grace of God, this claim dishonors both it and him. For it reduces God's love to an impotent wish and turns the whole economy of saving grace, so-called, Saving is really a misnomer on this view. And to a monumental divine failure. Faithful gospel preaching doesn't leave sinful man in this state thinking that God is really the needy one. And that he can meet God's way in any way. Rather, it must declare to sinners that while God is patiently pleading and calling, he is not frustrated. He's not full of wishful thinking. He is the sovereign Lord who has withheld judgment for yet another day and who cannot be manipulated or have his plans hindered by sinful man. Number two, it rightly humbles sinful man rather than leaving him in his sinful self-confidence. Gospel preaching must direct the sinner to Christ for all that he needs. It directs him to his total inability to even believe by that, by itself. It points him to the complete despair that is his apart from Christ. It doesn't leave man with the false notion that he's able to choose or reject Christ at will. It points him to Christ and the grace offered to Christ to whom he's commanded to bring all of his wretchedness, even his unbelief. Bring your unbelief to Christ. And plead on his grace. And fill your mind with the cross and glory of Christ. It doesn't seek to manipulate sinners to make a decision. But it's content simply to hold up the glory of Christ in the gospel. Knowing that is precisely the means where faith is granted to sinners. 
J.I. Packer again writes, Thus it labors to overthrow self-confidence, to convince sinners that their salvation is altogether out of their hands, and to shut them up to a self-despairing dependence on the glorious grace of a sovereign Savior. Not only for their righteousness, but for their faith too. And number three. It highlights the amazing grace of God rather than watering it down with the contribution of man. While it's true that Arminians trust in the cross as their ultimate ground of acceptance before God, they do, they're saved. Nevertheless, in the end, the decision was finally and ultimately their own. Such that the primary distinction between a believer And an unbeliever comes down to man and not God. And that, in my opinion, is a kind of grace very different from what we discover in the New Testament. So those are weighty doctrines. But they're glorious. They're precious. We need them as part of our spiritual diet. So let me commend to you the definite work of Christ on on your behalf, believer. Keep Christ before you. Meditate on his cross, what he did for you, the love that he's shown you. Read good books on the atonement. Fill your life with it. Read Spurgeon. Read Carson. Read John Murray. Read Packer. If you would like to see some of these books, come up and take a look here after, after class. And go forth proclaiming a free, universal gospel call and message let's pray father we thank you for your word thank you for christ and the atonement that he made for us while we were still enemies accomplishing full redemption for us not because of anything in us but because you gave us to him before the foundation of the world may it lay us in the dust Humble, overwhelmed by the love of Christ, that we would live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and and was raised. We love you. Bless us now as we go either home or to the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.